0: A couple years ago, my grandfather passed away, but before he passed away, I probably didn't have a greater friend. In fact, for over a decade, every week, I saw him. Regardless of how busy I was, I got in my car, I drove to Toronto. We would build furniture together. We played a lot of chess. We, we talk about life and ministry. He really became my support system for me. I couldn't have asked for a better friend. But you need to know, it hadn't always been that way. You no, know, growing up, my grandfather and I, we didn't often see eye to eye. You see, it's just that my grandfather, he was a bit of a hard man. And if I'm honest, I was a bit of a soft kid. We were like oil and water together. In fact, so much so that when my parents would go away, they would be reluctant to leave me with him and would send me to my other grandparents instead. You see, often when my parents were away, I'd become homesick. Or when I was away, I'd get homesick. I'd get weepy. I was this overly emotional kid. I've done much better at suppressing those since then. (laughs) Well, my grandfather wasn't built that way. And I guess this one trip came, and they had no choice, and so they decided me to leave leave me with him. I can't remember how old I was. I think it was probably 10 or so. Regardless, as they pulled away, I started to cry. I went to my room. I was upset. My grandfather, he came around the corner, seeing me cry, he told me, real men don't cry. He in no uncertain turn told me I needed to grow up and be a man. Well, today we come to a passage that is just as blunt and alarming as that. A passage that makes us sit up and take notice, as the author doesn't mince words, but tells his audience in no uncertain terms to stop being babies and grow up. Sadly, I believe it's a message that many in the church today still need to hear. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 5, as we continue in our study of this book. Hebrews chapter 5. Over the last few weeks, we've been working through this book, a, a book written to encourage a young Jewish church that was struggling in their faith. Right from the first chapter, the author has conveyed how concerned he was for them. How worried he was that they would leave the church, abandon Christianity, and go back to their former way of life, back to Judaism. In fact, so much so that he spent the best part of five chapters giving them reasons not to. He's reminded them of the superiority of Jesus, their Savior, that he is the Son of God, very God of very God, the creator of everything, the one who holds everything together He's told them that Jesus was the greatest person to ever walk the planet. And that because he was a man, he was able to identify with us in our temptation. Able to represent us before God the Father as our great high priest. The author, he wanted his audience, he wanted you and I to be blown back by the wonder of our Lord and Savior. To be awestruck by him, by who he is and who he was. To the point that turning away from that would be seen for what it was as something pointless, as giving away something great for something far less. Last week at the start of chapter 5, the author stressed that Jesus is our high priest, having been appointed by God. And in fact, to make the point, he quoted from two Old Testament passages, Psalms 2, which states that God had appointed him as his son, and Psalm 110, which reads, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, he, he was a priest that God had chosen the Old Testament who wasn't a Jew. His point, the author's point, was that Jesus' priesthood, like Melchizedek, came from the sovereign purpose of God, that God had chosen Jesus as an eternal priest. It was a fact that was meant to give assurance to those that were reading, that Jesus would always be there to represent them before God the Father. Well, note that having mentioned Melchizedek, instantly the author's mind starts to run wild as a comparison to Jesus flood over him. His heart rate grows up, and he wants to dive right in, get to the doctrine. But then the thought hits him. Maybe those he's writing to aren't capable of getting it. And so in frustration, he breaks his argument to warn them. Have you ever tried to explain complex algebra to a toddler? It just doesn't work. It's frustrating, even though it might be helpful for them to figure out how many blocks they need to build a circular tower or how fast they were going on the sled. Perhaps as a teen, you've tried to teach that to your parents that are trying to help you in high school. Regardless, it's frustrating. Well, it is that kind of frustration that the author must have felt as he thinks about sharing about Melchizedek with them. If you would, following as I read, starting in verse 11 of chapter 5. The author writes this. About this, about Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the pow- their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good for e- from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up in contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to, be, to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name and the serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For the author here, even the thought of telling them about the order of Melchizedek is hard. No, Not because the topic itself is innately difficult or somehow they were intellectually inept, but because he knows that some of them have become dull of hearing. That word dull, it means sluggish. It means lethargic. It literally reads being sluggish in the ears. In other words, they were no longer receiving, really being receptive to the truths they were hearing. It wasn't affecting them like it once did. Have you ever thought, have you ever had one of those moments when you looked at your kid and thought, you need to grow up? When he thought, why don't you listen? Why can't you stop acting like a baby? Well, that is the point that the author is at here. Because as he thinks about all this, he realizes that some of them have stopped growing spiritually. So he tells them in no uncertain terms that if they're immature, they need to grow up. That's the first point, that they need to grow up. You know, when, first people come, when people first become believers, they're often like sponges, aren't they? They soak up everything they can. They listen intently. They go to class. They go to Sunday school. They make that a priority. They never miss church. They, they find countless people on the internet to listen to. They want to know more. They flood my email with questions. Back during that great awakening, a revival in the 1700s, new believers were so excited, they were often known to study shorthand just to take down the sermon notes. In fact, history tells us that when a speaker came to the area, It was not unusual to see men with portable inkwells strapped about them with a quill pen over an ear. Well, new believers tend to be like that, don't they? But let's be honest, that excitement, it doesn't always last. Instead, their focus sometimes fades, their energy can evaporate, and their growth sometimes stagnates or regresses. At least that is what had happened to some of this audience. Sure, maybe they were going to church, Perhaps they were listening to the sermon, but they weren't digesting it. They weren't working to understand it and incorporate what was being said into their lives. They weren't doing their part. One thing is for sure. They weren't interested in studying or looking at difficult doctrines. As they had developed a, I could care less, attitude about the study of God's word. In fact, they become so lazy in their walk with God that it had stunted their spiritual growth. Oh, the author, he isn't writing to new believers who just needed to be given time to grow. But to those that should have already been matured, that, as he put it, ought to be teachers by now. Now, don't hear me wrong. He's not saying that every one of us ought to be teachers, but rather by now they should know enough. They should have internalized enough that they could train a new believer. And yeah, that wasn't the case. And said so they had forgotten what they should know and needed someone to teach them again the, the very print, basic principles of God. And the Greek translated basic principles. It, it actually means something like the ABCs of thing, the things of God, the, the main things, the plain things. In other words, they'd forgotten the very fundamentals of the faith, like, like a math student trying to learn long division that has forgotten how to subtract, like a student trying to multiply that has forgotten how to add. Without these basic understandings, more mature, complex truths were just too much for them. They couldn't even begin to understand them or apply them to their life. It was a situation the author wasn't too pleased about. After all, he gives us this gross picture to hammer home his point, telling they're on milk, not solid food. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving an infant milk. It'd be simply pointless to put a steak dinner in front of a baby. But everything is wrong with offering a mother's milk when a child is ready for steak. That is why the picture he points is so powerful. Think of the absurdity, grown men and women being fed by their mothers. They're like adults in diapers. So, before you conclude they're just not like us, and write them off, as harsh as it is, if I'm honest, most churches today are filled with people like this. After all, we live in a time when most church members are immensely ignorant about the Bible. Yeah, they agree the Bible is true, but rarely do they bother to learn what it teaches. A recent survey showed that most professing Christians can't, for instance, list half of the Ten Commandments. They can't cite the four Gospels or define what justification is. They have no idea what the Apostle Paul wrote about in the book of Romans. Asked if the Bible says God helps those who help themselves, 80% of self-described Christians respond it does, even though it was really Benjamin Franklin that said it. Many believers, they simply don't know what they believe or why, and sometimes it's because they think that theology and study is boring. Other times it's because they think it's a waste of time. I mean, what difference does it really make whether God is triune, three in one? Does it really matter if Jesus' righteousness comes by imputation or by infusion? Do I really need to understand how salvation works? Or even what those terms are? Well, I'm not convinced that they need to know. They just don't bother to study it. Here the the author writes, Those who live on milk are unskilled in the work of righteousness. And that phrase, word of righteousness, it, it implies that they they don't have a solid grasp of how Jesus' righteousness saves them though they scratch their head when they read verses like 2 Corinthians 5 which says for our sake he Jesus he God made him to be Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God these people they just don't understand what Paul is getting at there or why they would care isn't it all that matters is that we believe in Jesus and get along they say What's more, the word of righteousness, it implies they aren't living out the truth. Instead, they're telling themselves, didn't Jesus say that the kingdom belongs to those of childlike faith? And, And I know Jesus, so they don't see the problem. But here's the thing. Childlike faith isn't the same as childish faith. And here we're told that there's a steep price to be paid for not growing up, for being perpetually an infant. After all, not only did they let down the church, not being able to teach and and are not able to understand the deep truths the author wants to tell them, but if that wasn't bad enough, because they're immature, the author writes that they can't tell the difference between sound and dangerous teaching, between what is good and what is evil. It makes sense when you stop and think about it. After all, if you don't know God's word, how can you even begin to know what his thoughts are on ethical or spiritual or moral issues? Those of you who have kids can probably relate to this. No doubt there was a time, I think most of my kids have had it, when they came home and it, they, they used a swear word. They had heard it at school. They'd heard it on the bus. They didn't really know what it meant. So they just were trying it out there to see what would happen. And they didn't know it didn't honor God until we corrected them. But without studying, these believers simply guessed at what God wanted. They didn't know. And sadly, they often thought more the way the world does than he does. Mark No once wrote, The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. Unlike their spiritual ancestors, modern evangelicals have not pursued comprehensive thinking under God or sought a mind shaped to its furthest reaches by Christian perspective. Over in Romans 12, the apostle Paul would write, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, this group, maybe they had started to do that, but it hadn't lasted. and so they had forgotten and needed the basics again. Sadly, their laziness, it made them vulnerable, unable to discern good from evil, unable to discern how to handle the continual moral issues that we face in life. And discernment is important. One author put it this way, discernment is critical to our lives. It often takes shape in ways that are not overly intellectual. Think about it, he writes. We negotiate many of our day-to-day decisions on the basis of an intuitive discernment. To put it another way, discernment is like a theological grid or worldview that helps us make instant moral and theological judgments about our circumstances. We would never get anything done if we made every decision on the basis of sheer intellectual reconstruction, he writes. Imagine a heart surgery surgeon who had to stop and rethink cardiology in the middle of the surgery. Imagine how disastrous it would be if he needed to consult a textbook every time he entered the operating room. No one wants that kind of surgeon. We want surgeons who can use the intuition they've developed over years of practice. Well, this discernment, well, this need for discernment applies not just to surgeons, but also Christians. Discernment is a higher order of thinking. and can only be acquired through diligent training and experience. We want surgeons whose powers of discernment have been trained by constant practice. Similarly, if we want to mature as Christians, we must train our powers of discernment by constant practice. We should, be so thoroughly, we should so thoroughly consider and internalize the fundamentals of the faith that we're able to discern good from evil. But while that's what ought to be, there were many that hadn't done so. There's many today that haven't done that either. Note that that's why church after church in our country, believer after believer, has fudged on theological issues. Whether it's when they've approved same-sex marriage or turned a blind eye to divorce or embraced Christianity as one of the ways, but not the only way. My guess is is that they haven't matured, or they've gone back in their maturity. They've lost their ability to discern because they become dull in their hearing and didn't accept or take God's word seriously. They've forgotten the fundamentals. But what we could point at other churches, there are people like that in every church. People who casually drift in their faith, that minimize the importance of studying God's word who at best ponder a verse or two a day and say a quick prayer. Sure, they go to church, but they complain if it gets too deep. They want more stories. Give me a bottle, they say. Well, they don't say it, but that's what they're saying. Many of you might see the picture of a a huge eagle's nest high in the branches of a tree or in the crag of a cliff. When a mother eagle builds her nest, she starts with thorns and broken branches, and sharp rocks, a number of items that you wouldn't think would be suitable for the project. But then she lines that nest with thick padding of wool and feather and fur from the animals she's killed and makes it soft and comfortable. By the time the birds reach flying age, the comfort of the nest and the luxury of a free meal makes them quite reluctant to leave. So the mother eagle starts stirring up the nest. With her talon, she begins pulling away the carpet of Carpet of fur and feathers bring the sharp rocks and branches to the surface. And as she plucks away more of the bedding, the nest becomes uncomfortable. Eventually, this and some other promptings prompt the eagles to leave, their young eagles to leave their once comfortable nest and move on to mature behavior. Well, today, churches rarely do that. Instead, we try to make it comfortable. We try to cater to the needs and and wants of people. We do that because they don't, churches do that because they don't want to lose anyone. They don't want to discourage anyone. One thing is sure: they certainly don't want to teach hard things or address challenges that our world presents. They don't want to inspire their people to grow to maturity because that's difficult. Instead, they give them milk. And because we're used to milk, we're used to being bottle fed, we get upset when we aren't. But that isn't what the author here is going to do. In fact, over the next few chapters, he's going to go on and give theological meat. And that's what he would desire us to be able to handle as well. Years ago, I was taking in class. A pastor from South Carolina was teaching it. And he told us of how he took a year off to develop a discipleship training manual for his church. He shared with me how difficult it was to, to do and the challenges of trying to figure out the different stages of growth and indicators of growth. Well, after months, he came up with, a four, with four stages to Christian maturity. What was most interesting to me, though, was how long he thought it took people to go through the stages. For example, in stage two, a stage in which he believes believers knew their spiritual gifts, had basic spiritual habits of memorizing scriptures, studying their Bible, reaching out, giving, and accountability, had a vision for the lost and a deep desire to learn. He discovered that while well, it took a while, within three years of conversion, all should at least have achieved that. And by five years, he concluded, one should be mature able to teach others, able to mentor others. So let me ask you, how long have you been saved? Has it been five years? Has it been more than three years? Do you have basic spiritual habits? Let me be blunt. If you've been a believer for 30 years and don't, what does that say? Are you mature or do you still require milk? Over time, have you given up meat and gone back to the bottle? Friends, don't miss it. As Christians, we're either moving forward or sliding backward. We're not static, so where are you at? Perhaps you're not sure. So, well, the best place to figure out is whether or not you have the basic principles down and are ready to move on to harder things. Unless you wonder what those basic elementary doctrines are, the author gives them for us. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. He writes, says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying in a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Here the, the author basically lays out what those basics are, the ABCs of faith are. He, he tells us they include an understanding of the repentance from dead works and faith towards God. That as believers we are to have an understanding that we're not saved on the basis of our good deeds, but it's only on the basis of God's grace through faith that we can be saved. It's an area of study that theologians call soteriology, an understanding of salvation. Truth, there's nothing more fundamental to our faith to the point that every believer ought to have an understanding of what it means to be saved, what it means to be elected by God, redeemed from sin and Satan, regenerated, given new life, adopted into God's family, justified before a holy God, and how we are sanctified in Jesus. Now, those are big terms, but those are the basics. And each and every one of them not only gives us assurance that we are saved, but form a grid to tell us how we ought to behave and how we ought to live. Oh, the author, then he mentions washing and laying on of hands. In the New Testament, the laying on of hands was done to, for the giving of the Holy Spirit or the imparting of spiritual gifts. So it seemed to be his say, way of saying the basics include not just an understanding of salvation, but understanding the Holy Spirit. The role he plays, something referred to as pneumatology. Lastly, the fundamentals, they also include instructions about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All believers have an understanding of the last things, the coming judgment of God, the return of Jesus, what happens to those who've died. In other words, they have a working knowledge of what we call eschatology. Um, no doubt because our eschatology, our study of the future, inspires us to ethics in the present. Well, sadly, what would happen if I gave a quiz out on those topics today? Would we fare well? How's your soteriology, your pneumatology, and your eschatology this morning? Did you ever hear those terms before? Yeah, those are the basics. They are the elementary doctrines, the ABCs. They are the milk for babies that he wishes his readers were ready to move on from. They were the foundation on which they were to build their understanding. Begging us to ask, how is our foundation? How would we be graded on those things? Or have we become dull in hearing and stop growing? Today, if you have a child that stops growing or stops maturing, everyone is quick to agree something is wrong. That something abnormal is happening. We need to do something. But we're not quick to recognize the problem when it happens to us spiritually. We're oblivious to it or ignorant. Many don't even see it as a problem. But here the author does. In fact, he sees it as one of the worst problems possible in that he tells us that those that aren't mature are in danger of being lost forever. Which leads us to the next thing he wants us to notice. Not only if we're immature, do we need to grow up, but if you're immature, you may discover you never had it. If you're immature, you're in danger of finding it. You were never saved to begin with. We all hear different stories. A 30-something-year-old woman prays a prayer after a friend shares the gospel over tea, but two months after sporadic involvement in the church, they become disillusioned with the position the church has on social issues and quickly falls away. A prominent black pastor leaves his church to become a Muslim, Stating that Islam has become the impetus for change in the American black community. A young woman in the third world faces persecution and recants her faith. A, A child goes through confirmation or through baptism at 12 years of age and is seemingly committed to Christ. But when they get older, they fall away and adopt worldly ways of living. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you have seen that sort of thing. Passionate, on fire, new believers that seem to burn bright and then fizzle out. Some even walk away from their faith as if their profession didn't mean anything. They started well, but it didn't last. Well, that reminds me of what the author goes on to say here. Look at verse 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. These are probably the three most difficult verses that we're going to come across in this book. Uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a pastor, I wish the author had either said more, defined more of these terms, given us examples perhaps, or said a whole lot less. Because it leaves us in an uncomfortable spot. After all, it begs the question, who is he talking about here? Is he talking about believers or unbelievers? You and I, we need to know, because it seems to be rather important, because whoever it is, their consequences are pretty terrifying. So who is it? And truthfully, there's only three ways to understand this. Some they think he's writing to genuine Christians, that for whatever reason, turned from their faith. Truthfully, as a fir- at a first read, that is exactly what it sounds like. I mean, it says they shared in the Holy Spirit, and elsewhere, the apostle Paul told us, the indwelling of the Spirit marks, is the mark of salvation. The presence of the Spirit seals us, seals the saved. The author then writes that they've been enlightened, giving us the image of the light of Jesus shining into their soul and tells us they've tasted the heavenly gift, which causes us to think that they've entered into relationship with Jesus. After all, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Every phrase used, it it makes us naturally think he's referring to Christians here. But if that is the case, When he says that if they fall away, if they turn from their faith, they cannot be restored. It would mean that those people have lost their salvation forever. That salvation could be lost. Others, they agree that while it's written to believers, they say it's, well, it's just hypothetical. The author's just saying something to motivate believers. But that's kind of like telling my kids to be careful with a hammer because they could knock down the house. It just isn't a good argument to motivate people because it's not true. In fact, it's a ridiculous threat. Still others have come to believe that these were men and women who appeared to be true believers, but weren't. Those that had been exposed to the gospel, catechized, made, made a profession of the faith, and it had been welcomed into the fellowship of God's people. People who had participated in spiritual things, but never had been saved. Sure, they'd been enlightened, like Israel in the wilderness, who had seen the pillar of fire and ate the manna, but had hardened their hearts. These people had been catechized, taught brought into the community of the church and experienced some of the spiritual realities, but had become hard. These people had tasted the heavenly gift. They had partook of communion. They had enjoyed the spiritual blessings of being part of the church, but never really were saved. They had even shared in the Holy Spirit. No, not indwelt by him, but since sharing implies something done in community with others, something like being a part of laying on of hands or, or responding to the gospel together in a rally. Simon Magnus is one they point to. He's a man we come across in the book of Acts. There we read Peter and John lay hands on some Samaritans and they receive the Spirit. And Simon sees that and he wants that skill. Simon had been baptized, yet Peter, after he hears his requests, says that his heart was not right before God. So these people, they say, are are those that have shared in some spiritual experience but have not been indwelt by the Spirit. What's more, they've tasted the Word of God. They like listening to it. It intrigues them, even though they don't, agree with it or reject it. And they've experienced the powers of the age to come. They've seen signs and wonders and miracles, but their hearts were never changed. In other words, they say those are the, they were those that looked the part, but were never the part. They were in the congregation, but they weren't saved and were in danger of losing their ability to ever be saved. Well, which one is it? Is the author speaking to believers or unbelievers? Is he saying you can come to faith and lose it? Or he's saying you can appear to have faith without ever having it. Whatever it is, it's important because he's clear that those he is speaking to, if they fall away, can never be restored. They're in danger of being lost forever. After rejecting Jesus, there's nowhere else for them to turn since there's nothing more to be added, nothing more to be taught to them, and what they had wasn't enough, their heart is becoming hard and they can no longer repent. So which one is it? And the debate has gone on for years, centuries. Well, I don't think the author is speaking to believers in these three verses. See, the author, he changes his pronouns. He, he uses you. He goes from you to they for these verses, which seems to say he's moved his focus off of his primary audience, audience which were the believers he wanted to encourage and on to other people. But not only that, we, we need to read these verses in context. And when you read these verses with the rest of scripture, it seems pretty clear that true believers cannot lose their salvation. Not sure? Well, the evidence isn't small. Well, that's when the Bible tells us the Lord keeps us in 2 Thessalonians saying, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Or in First Peter 1 where we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Or when we come across what Paul writes in the book of Philippians, he, God, who's began a good work, will perfect it until the day of Christ, or what he penned in Romans, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor thing to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Or, or simply what Paul wrote a few verses before that in the same chapter of Romans, where he talked about the fact that those that God justifies, he will also he is also glorified speaking of it in the past tense as it is so certain it is as if it has already happened. And that doesn't even begin to include what Jesus said. Whether that's when he said for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him would have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. I mean, what kind of eternal life would it be if it could end during my lifespan or, or when he said my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And truthfully, those are just a, a, the scratching the surface of what the Bible says that seems to indicate that once we are saved, we, can always, we are always saved. And I say, well, but Chad, the wording here is so strong. I mean, how is it possible for someone to be described this way and not be saved? Well, Judas gives us at least one example. For all likely, all the characteristics in this passage were part of his experience, but clearly he wasn't saved. In fact, Jesus went on to call him a devil and one for whom it would have been better if he'd never been born. And yet somehow Judas fit in with the other disciples. He had been there through the ministry. When Jesus sent out the 12 in Luke 9 to proclaim the kingdom and gave them power over demons and to cure disease, Judas was there. He was one of the 12. When Jesus fed the 5,000, Judas was there. When Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, Judas was there. He had been a part of so much to the point the others had no idea it was him. But just being a part doesn't make you a part. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus told the parable of the seeds. And that Jesus tells of seeds that are scattered. Some are scattered on the road and snatched away by the birds. Others fall on thin soil and initially grow. But because their roots are thin, the sun scorches them and they wither. Others fall among thorns and, and grow up only to be choked by them. And the last, only the last, falls on good soil and produces fruit. thorns. This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. Friends, don't miss it. There is always some that look the part that show signs of life that grow, that seem to grow. And yet since only bearing fruit is a true sign of genuine faith. While they looked apart the for a time, they were never really apart. God's word never really penetrated to the depths of their heart and minds. Jesus knew that. It's no doubt why immediately after that, he goes on to tell the parable of the, of the weeds. A parable in which the sower sows his seeds, and then the enemy of the sower comes and sows weeds among his wheat. And when plants come up, both the weeds and the wheats appear, And the servants ask him if he wants them to root up the weeds. And the master says, no, lest in the gathering the weeds, you root up the weed along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest time. See, for a time, weed and weeds can grow together. As one author wrote, he's speaking of copycat, bogus believers in the church whose artificial fruit is very good. So good, in fact, that search and destroy mission will uproot believers along with the counterfeit. I think that's the kind of person the author has in mind here. At least, that's how I take the illustration he gives about rain in verse 7 and 8. After all, just as rain falls on both land that produces crop and thorns, God's blessing fell on all those that were a part of this community. Unfortunately, whether they were saved or not, didn't become apparent until they walked away. The Apostle John put it this way. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be complained, they are all not of us. Now, I don't know about you, but there's hardly a greater warning for us to grow in our faith in scripture than this. After all, if we, if we don't, if we're like infants, we're told that we're in danger of discovering we never had salvation to begin with. We're in danger of this passage being about us, in danger of coming so close, understanding so much of the truth, and yet not becoming a believer that when we walk, we, when we walk away, we will never come back. So let me ask you, are you more knowledgeable in your faith now than a year ago? Are you growing in holiness? If you're sliding, if you care less about God and his holiness today, if you've gone back to a bottle and you've lost that fire you once had, you need to drop everything you're doing and tend to your soul. Because those who turn away show they never were saved and won't likely be inclined to consider him again. Which leads to the last point we want to notice. The way we live should give us assurance we're saved. The way we live should give us assurance that we're saved. It's almost as if after giving this warning, the author realizes that some of his flock might be worrying too much. And so he tries to sure up their confidence. But in your case, he writes, we feel sure there are better things. You are the land that bears crops. Over in John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And on a few verses later, he said, by this, my father's glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. And again, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you. Again and again, fruit is spoken of as a sign of salvation. To the point that everywhere you look in the New Testament, you find that true spirituality cannot be evaluated apart from fruitfulness in the Christian life. Apart from living out what we believe, fruit. Elsewhere, Jesus told us, told the disciples that by their fruit, people would recognize them. The apostle Paul said that we are Christ's workmanship, God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us to do. James, the author James reminds us that workless faith is suspect. And John tells us that a true relationship with God will result in, in the, in the fruit of love for others. Here, the author, he wants them to know that they have fruit. They're land that produces a crop. And because they can, they can be assured they're saved, he has seen their fruit. He's seen it in how they treat others in the family. And so he doesn't want them to worry needlessly. What's more, he knows that if they don't coax, but instead so earnestness, a diligence, when it comes to seeking assurance, they don't have anything to worry about. That word rendered earnestness here, it means diligence. It suggests a state of being meaningfully engaged in something, paying careful attention to it. According to the U.S. Naval Institute, the USS Astoria was the first U.S. cruiser to engage the Japanese during the, the Battle of Savoy on the night of August 8th in 1942. She scored two hits on the Japanese Imperial flagship, but was badly damaged. About two o'clock in the morning, a young single man, a signal man named Elgin Staples was swept overboard when the eight-inch gun turret exploded. He was wounded in his legs by shrapnel, but he was able to activate his life belt. Four hours later, he was rescued by a passing destroyer, and he was returned to the Astoria, who at the time, the captain was just trying to beach to save her from from, from having to scuttle her. The effort failed, and the boat went down, and Staples was still wearing the life belt. He found himself back in the water again. This time, he was picked up by another cruiser with 500 other survivors. While on board a transport, Staples, for the first time, looked at his life belt. It had been manufactured by the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company of Akron, Ohio. It bore a registration number. When he got home leave, Staples told this story, and he asked his mother, who worked for Firestone, about the purpose of the number on the belt. She replied that the company insisted on personal responsibility for the war effort, and that the number was unique and assigned to only one inspector. Staples quoted the number. It was his mother's number, affixed to every item she was responsible for approving. Because of her diligence in an anonymous wartime job, she secured her soon-to-be shipwrecked son's hope of survival. Well, how much greater are the stakes when heaven and hell, eternal life and eternal death are in the balance? Dear friends, we need to be urgent, diligent, paying careful attention to the faith, holding fast to it, ensuring that we don't become sluggish in our hearing, but instead are those who live out our faith, grow in our walk with God and our knowledge of him, and imitate those that have gone before. Here in this passage, the author, he really presents three types of people. Those that are dull of hearing, that don't treat their faith or study seriously, they can't really discern what is, the, what is good or evil and are in danger of finding out they weren't saved. Those that, that are in the current or in the past, they look the part, but it's only a ruse. They aren't really a part and have never really been a part. They've never truly been saved. And those that are assured of their faith because of how they live. Like the author, my desire is that you would be assured of your faith because of how you live. But I fear that there are some here that look the part but really aren't apart, and are in danger of becoming so hard that they will never be able to become apart. My guess is if that is you, you know who you are. Well, if that is you, I urge you tend to your soul, come to Jesus today before it's too late. So I, I fear there's other here, perhaps many that, that are just becoming dull of hearing that are becoming sluggish that don't study. If that's you, you need to hear the warning given here. You are in danger. You can't possibly discern good from evil. And if there is no growth, one day you may find out you were never saved to begin with. So today, commit to changing that. Commit to living out your faith, growing in your understanding, eating meat. So that you may have assurance that on the day you stand before God, you'll be found among those that are saved. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for passages that are difficult. That make us question and look at ourselves. And I thank you that you would write this to us so that we would examine our faith. So that we could have assurance. Not so that we would doubt. This was written so that you, so we could have assurance that we know you. That we could know what it is to, to live in that assurance. Lord, help us to be those that do that. To live in assurance. To see our lives as the fruit that we have because of our relationship with you. Help us to be those people. And Lord, if there are those here that, that are not that, that they don't really have faith, they act the part, they look the part, but there is no faith, Father, would you speak to them? Would you draw them to yourself? In Jesus' name, amen.